if you would, take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of First Chronicles. We're going to look together tonight at all of First and Second Chronicles. That's a lot, so you need to listen quickly this evening, okay? First Chronicles is, uh, if, if you're accustomed to, as many of you are, the, the chronological Bible reading plan, you're familiar with how much of the content of First and Second Chronicles appears elsewhere in the Scripture. There are those days in your chronological Bible readings where it feels as though you're reading the same thing multiple times. And it feels that way because you're reading the same thing multiple times. About 50% of the content of First and Second Chronicles can be found in other books in the Old Testament. First and Second Chronicles are written at the end of the period, the Old Testament period, about 400 years before the birth of Christ. And Jewish tradition is always held that Ezra, the scribe, Ezra of the book of Ezra, is the author of First and Second Chronicles. And Ezra, I think that's probably a, a pretty good educated guess at who the author of First and Second Chronicles is. Ezra utilizes a lot of biblical material, already existent biblical material, to inform his telling of Israel and Judah's history, Israel as a people, Israel and Judah as nations, to tell, to communicate their history. About 50% of First and Second Chronicles is new information. And it's interesting at certain points, um, bits of Israel's history that are included and bits of Israel's history that are not included in First and Second Chronicles. For instance, much of First Chronicles is focused on the life of David, King David, a man after God's own heart. And many of the more embarrassing episodes of David's life are not highlighted or dealt with at any length in First Chronicles. The goal for Ezra is not to gloss over the bad spots in David's uh, life and history, the, the goal is to highlight the good things within David's experience, to focus on the way David honored his commitment to God and the way God honored his commitment to David. There was a season of, of peace and prosperity in the nation of Israel under the reign of David. That's the product of David's faithfulness to God. In spite of the shortcomings in his experience, the composite character of David as a man was one after God's heart. A man that pursued God, a man who was deeply interested in making much of God, a man who was greatly concerned with bringing glory and honor to God. It's, it might be helpful in understanding some of the motives of Ezra and the way First and Second Chronicles is constructed to remind ourselves that Ezra is writing to the people of Israel after the exile experience. So if you've been with us in our study over the past several weeks, we've come from the very beginning uh, through the exile, the most embarrassing episode in the history of Israel. God begins to establish for himself uh, the nation of Israel through the lineage of Abraham way back in the book of Genesis. You have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as the patriarchs, the sons of Jacob being carried away through a famine and the circumstances of life. Joseph plants himself in Egypt, becomes a great leader, but there arises a king in Egypt who knows not Joseph. And so for 400 years, the people of Israel grow, they prosper as a people, but they come under some oppression under the leadership there in Egypt. That is until God raises up Moses, the first of the prophets, to lead his people out of their Egyptian bondage and into the promised land. 
only coming short by his own stubbornness and the reluctance of the people to trust the promise of God in entering in the promised land. Joshua comes along and he leads the people of Israel into the promised land. There is the conquest of the land. There is the allotment of the land. The people receive their portion of the promised land and they begin to settle themselves there. Then comes the period of the judges. When Israel is reminded of what Moses had instructed them years before, that they, they do have a desperate need for a king. God first is king, but there's some benefits to having an earthly king as well. In the days of the judges, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And there's this cycle of judgment and deliverance that unfolds in the book of Judges. By the time we come to 1 Samuel, the people call for a king, and they get a king, only they don't get the right kind of king. And eventually Saul dies as a product of his disobedience, his unfaithfulness to God. God raises up David, a shepherd boy, the son of Jesse, to lead the nation of Israel. Solomon, David's son, comes after him, and so kings follow after, but there's a pattern of disobedience that emerges, and as a result of that, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel in the north of the promised land, are carried away by the Assyrians and virtually dissolved as a people. Short time later, in the 6th century B.C., so the southern kingdom is carried away into exile under, ba under the Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar. It's where Daniel and Ezekiel fall into the history of the Old Testament. But here, after that exile, after the 70 years of bondage again in Babylon, the people are delivered back into the Promised Land. King Cyrus of Persia uh, gives a, a decree and, a, and affords the people of Israel the opportunity under Nehemiah and Ezra to come back into the Promised Land and begin to reestablish themselves as a nation. First and Second Chronicles are written after those experiences to reflect back on what God had promised his people prior to the exile and to remind them that in spite of the fact that so much had gone awry, that God is faithful to keep his promise. They'd come back, but Israel was a shell of its former self. The northern kingdom had all but dissolved. The Davidic dynasty was in shambles, and the Persian Empire was at its absolute height. Even the Temple of Solomon, the Temple of Solomon, was, was burned and destroyed by the Babylonians. Things seemed to be as bleak as they could possibly be. But the chronicler helps the people of Israel to connect their experience post-exile with the people of God pre-exile. Not just connecting them by identity, but connecting them with the promises God gave his people before all of this turned to the disaster that it ultimately turned to through the exile. When you come to First Chronicles in your Bible reading plans, especially if you're just reading through for many of you, these first nine chapters are a painful, painful few days. They're long genealogical sections, and you find yourself reading through wondering what might be gleaned there. But this painstaking genealogical presentation would have helped the people of Israel to connect in their head and hearts with the community of Israel that exists before the exile. And connecting with that community means not only identifying with them ethnically and nationally, but identifying with the promises that God made to his people in those days. In, in First and Second Chronicles, there's a special focus on what some writers refer to as the chronicler's 
perceived instruments of salvation. By that, it's intended, the chronicler focuses on, Ezra focuses on the Davidic dynasty, kings in the line of David. What we learn back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is that God intended that a king in the line of David would rule forever over the nation of Israel. The, the hearts of the people of Israel are set that what they need is a king in the line of David. And for, to a certain extent, and for a certain period of time, with the rise of every new Davidic king, there seems to be a rising expectation that this might be the king who could do for us what we so desperately need done for us. And then, of course, we turn to Matthew 1, and we discover that there is a new king in town, and his name is Jesus, and he just happens to be a king in the line of David, and he just happens to be the kind of king we've always needed. The Chronicler focuses, not exclusively, but, but heavily on the Davidic line, David and Solomon and the kings of Judah that come after those two in the line of David. There's a second point of emphasis in First and Second Chronicles, and it's the temple. The, the temple is the place where God abides in the midst of his people. God is with the people of Israel in the temple. We're going to look at a passage in Second Chronicles just a little while from now where the glory of God descends and covers the temple of Solomon, the Solomonic temple. After the exile, the people of Israel reconstruct a temple and the people weep. Those older people in the assembly at the reconstruction of the temple weep because they remember the glory of the former temple, the glory of Solomon's temple, and they observe how this temple pales in comparison to the glory of the temple that was, was before. But this, this new temple would be adorned with, with a greater glory. In, in spite of its appearances, and it did come well short of the appearance of Solomon's temple, in, in spite of its lackluster appearance, this temple would be a temple of, of greater glory not for its construction, not for its adornment, but because this temple would be graced not by the symbolic presence of God in the midst of his people, but by the actual presence of God in his Son, Jesus Christ. Christ would, would come and, and, and walk in the midst of that temple, even as he walked in the midst of his people. We find in Jesus the fulfillment of what is foreshadowed in First and Second Chronicles. Not just a temple building, but a temple person. When Jesus says to the people, tear this temple down and I'll build it in three days, he's not talking about the facility. He's talking about himself. It is in Christ, in Christ, not in the temple, but in Christ that we experience the presence of God in our life. Christ is our salvation temple in which we find our rest, in which we find the very presence of God. The chronicler is on to something when he notes that the Davidic line is of critical importance. We need to connect with that again, that the temple is of incredible importance. We need to connect with that again. There, there's a, a third instrument of salvation is what we'll call them that's focused on in first and second chronicles it's the city of jerusalem 
we may not have direct parallels between the fulfillment found in Jesus and the city of Jerusalem, but we know that in Christ, because we have experienced the presence of God in the new temple who is Jesus, because we have found the king we've always needed in the king of David, the son of David, Jesus Christ, that there awaits for us a new Jerusalem. We have foreshadowings of what we enjoy in Jesus in First and Second Chronicles that I think stand to help us tonight to relish what Christ has done for us in his incarnation, in clothing himself in flesh, walking in our midst, paying the penalty for our sin and being raised again the third day. The, the chronicler gives us, and we're going we're gonna, to, that's more introduction than we maybe have time to do and then get through what we need to get through. But I want you to note the way the chronicler tells the history of Israel with a decidedly theological bent. In, in other words, he's not just giving us a history in the same way that First and Second Kings give us a history. He's providing us with a theological interpretation of history's events. He's looking back on those experiences, the rise and the fall of kings who came before, and helping the people of Israel to understand that there's a theological reason why kings rise and fall. There's a theological reason why we rise and fall. There are theological reasons behind what you'll see in the nightly news. Not always clearly apparent to us, and we're prone to misinterpret the theological uh, meaning behind things as they unfold in our personal experiences. But make no mistake, God is actively involved in history, even in our history, for our good and for his glory. So along the way, special note is made to help us to understand that these kings fall either by their obedience or their faithfulness to God or by their disobedience. Look at chapter 10, 1 Chronicles chapter number 10. Chapters 1 through 9 are all genealogies, again, helping the people to, to identify with the pre-exile community. And now we begin this theological history in chapter number 10. Now, you'll remember back in 1 Samuel, you had all these chapters that were devoted to telling the life of Saul, how he was called for as a king, how he became a king, the mistakes that he made, and even his death. But we have a much briefer telling of Saul's experiences here in, in 1 Chronicles chapter number 10. Look down to verse number 13. We'll cut right to the chase. Here the Bible says, Saul died for his unfaithfulness to the Lord, because he did not keep the Lord's word. He even consulted a medium for guidance, but he did not inquire of the Lord, so the Lord put him to death and turned the, king, the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. Saul sort of becomes a, a prototype for exile. If you want to experience exile in your personal life, then you defy the word of God. Saul was unfaithful to God, he did not keep the Lord's word. He even consulted a medium. And as a result of this, the Lord put him to death through very natural circumstances. God put him to death. The Chronicle helps us to understand the theological motive behind what's experienced in Saul's life. In chapter 11, David is anointed as the king of Israel. He rules over the United Kingdom. And there is some description of the early events of David's life and experience. 
But the key to David's success is noted in verse 9 of chapter 11. Early in the telling of David's life and history, there's a note here that helps us to understand why it was that David was fruitful in his endeavors, that he proved to be the kind of king that God desired. Verse 9 says, David steadily grew more powerful, and the Lord of hosts was with him. David was amassing uh, power within his leadership, within his administration. He ruled first over Judah and then ultimately over the United Kingdom, both Judah and Israel. A very brief period of time in Israel's history with a king that they were together. It was under David and it was under Saul and it didn't last long under Rehoboam, the son of Saul, but this, or the son of Solomon. But this is how David was able to hold together. together. The secret to David's success was that God was with him. God's hand was on David. That's the theological reason why David was fruitful in his life and his administration. The Lord was with him. Now, there's not much said about David's preparations for the construction of the temple in First and Second First and Second Samuel, but there is a great deal said about David preparing for Solomon's construction of the temple here in First Chronicles. Again, because that's a point of interest and emphasis here in the book of First Chronicles. There are entire chapters that are focused on David's commitment to putting together what needed to be put together in order for the temple to be built under his son Solomon. You might remember that David actually wanted to build the Lord a house. He wanted to build a temple in 2 Samuel 7. And God says, David, you've gotten this thing all wrong. This has never been about you building me a house. This has been about me building you a house. I'm going to afford your son Solomon the opportunity to build me a temple. But I need you to understand that you are where you are by my grace and by my grace alone. There's a valuable lesson to be learned there for all of us. You come over to chapter 29 of First Chronicles, and there's a, a, a brief description of David's preparations for the temple, and then a prayer that closes out First Chronicles, beginning in verse number 10. David's prayer gives us some insight in, into the character of, of the man, and what the chronicler wants us to understand about his character that lends itself to being fruitful and prosperous under the hand of God. In verse 10, the Bible says that David praised the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, May you be praised, Lord God of our father Israel, from eternity to eternity. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty for everything in the heavens and on the earth belongs to you. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. And you are exalted as head over all. Riches and honor come from you, and you are the ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hand, and it's in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. Now therefore, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. Now, if you're a person who struggles to know how to pray, and I so often get that question, how do I pray? This is not a bad place to begin. David is a pretty good prayer, and he, he, he worships as he prays. And I would suggest he likely leads the people to worship as he prays, reflecting on the greatness of God. Look at what he says in verse 14. 
if there's a single attribute of David's character that is praiseworthy, it's, it's this one. He says, now remember this is a king. This is a great king. This is a king of great wealth. And David says, but who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? For everything comes from you. We've given you only what comes from your hand. We live before you as foreigners and temporary residents in your presence as all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Yahweh our God, all this wealth that we've provided for building you a house and for your holy name comes from your hand. Everything belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and that you're pleased with what is right. I have willingly given all these things with an upright heart, and now I've seen your people who are present here giving joyfully and willingly to you. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our ancestors, keep this desire forever in the thoughts of the hearts of your people. Confirm their hearts toward you. Give my son Solomon a whole heart to keep and to carry out all your commands, your decrees, your statutes, and to build the temple, temple for which I've made provision. The, the humility of David drips from this prayer. The king says, who, who am I? And he takes special note that my ability to give anything, to do anything of any value for God is supplied by the very God who receives the gift. Even your ability to worship is provided by the power of the God we seek to worship. Your awareness of the worthiness of our God to be praised is the product of God's work in your life. We bring nothing to the table. We don't have any great contribution to make. We are clay in the potter's hands. Everything that we have is to be attributed to the goodness and the grace of our God. Even when we've made our greatest contribution, when we've performed our most excellent work, we must pause and reflect to note that our ability to do so is entirely dependent upon the presence and the work of God in our life. David as king gets it. And it stands in direct contrast to so many of Israel's kings who, who not only failed to give glory to God, but sought to get glory themselves, who directed the people not toward the worship of the one true living God, but toward the worship of idols and creeping and crawling things to deflect the glory that was to be attributed to God and God alone to creaturely things not fit to be praised. David was a man filled with fault. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to be aware of David's issues. He had them. But, but this attribute of his character was such that the Bible would reflect on his life and say David was a man after God's own heart. Humbly seek to bring glory and honor to God and don't ever forget the source of blessing in your life. And, and, and we will have gone a long way toward walking worthy of the calling with which we have been called. 
David is consistently characterized this way because, because that's the good and praiseworthy part of David's life. It's these parts of David's life that remind us of our desperate need for a king in the line of David. We need a good, holy, humble king ultimately found in Christ and in Christ alone. When we come to Second Chronicles, the focus shifts from David to his son Solomon. And there's a lot of Second Chronicles that's focused on Solomon. But we learn early, as with David, we learn early in the description of Solomon's leadership why it is that Solomon was effective, why it is that Solomon was fruitful in his administration. Look at Second Chronicles 1 and verse 1. The Bible says there Solomon, son of David, strengthened his hold on the kingdom. That is, he strengthened the kingdom itself. The kingdom was actually stronger under Solomon than it was under David. The borders, the boundaries of Israel were never broader and have yet to be as broad even today as they were under the leadership of Solomon. There was a greater degree of prosperity enjoyed under Solomon's reign than even under that of David. Solomon's reign is the, really the only time in ancient history when Israel is looked to by dignitaries of every nation. The nation sent their best and brightest to Solomon that he would impart just a bit of his wisdom. Solomon strengthened the kingdom, the hold that he had on the kingdom, that David had prior on the kingdom. And, and the second sentence of verse 1 says, The Lord his God was with him, and highly exalted him. That's the theological reason that Solomon was successful, that he was fruitful as a king. Now again, Solomon was a man who made many mistakes. In fact, he made 999 mistakes because the Bible says that Solomon had 700 wives and he had 300 concubines. By my math, that's 999 mistakes. But there were mistakes beyond that. There, there were other issues in Solomon's life. Among the problems generated by 700 wives and 300 concubines is that many of those ladies came with their own religious practices. And their religious practices influenced Solomon in his life and leadership as well. But you can't deny Solomon's hand in the construction of the temple. Solomon walked with the Lord for a great part of his life. Yes, there were missteps, there were blatant sins, there was the presence of idolatry which needed to be addressed and dealt with. But again, the chronicler is looking at the praiseworthy aspects of Solomon's life to remind us that we need a king in the line of David because of these things. In spite of what you know from First and Second Kings, in spite of what you know of David from First and Second Samuel, these are the kind of attributes, this is the kind of character, this is the kind of orthodoxy, this is the kind of praise, this is the kind of humility that we're looking for in a king who is to come. Look to Second Chronicles chapter number 6 and verse 1. Here Solomon is dedicating the temple. I think we mentioned this back in our study of 2 Kings, but modern-day economists have crunched the numbers and come up with uh, somewhere around $2 billion as the modern-day cost of Solomon's temple. He dispatched the finest materials from all over the world to put together this house in which the presence of God would dwell. 
And here at the dedication of the temple in chapter 6 and verse 1, Solomon said, The Lord said he would dwell in thick darkness, but I've built an exalted temple for you, a place for your residence forever. The king turned and blessed the entire congregation of Israel while they were standing, and he said, May the Lord God of Israel be praised. He spoke directly to my father David, and he has fulfilled the promise by his power. He said, Since the day I brought my people Israel out of the land of Egypt, I've not chosen a city to build a temple in among any of the tribes of Israel so that my name would be there. And I've not chosen a man to be a ruler over my people Israel, but I've chosen Jerusalem so that my name will be there. And I've chosen David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, since it was your desire to build a temple for my name, you've done well to have this desire yet you're not the one to build it. If you look down to verse 12, in fact, verse 12 is where we have an introduction to Solomon's prayer. The prayer itself begins in verse number 14. You'll see the parallels between Solomon's prayer of thanksgiving and dedication here and the prayers of his father David. What you're seeing here, what we're observing in both David and Solomon is that their goal, their desire is to point the people to God, to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is incumbent upon any spiritual leader, any leader who comes under the authority of God. His primary objective in life and leadership is to be pointing the people under his stewardship to the true God of heaven, to, to compel others to come and to make much of this God who is infinitely worthy of all worship and praise. In verse 14, the Bible says, He said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping his gracious covenant with your servants who walk before you with their whole heart. You have kept what you promised to your servant, my father David. You spoke directly to him, and you fulfilled your promise by your power as it is today. Can we just pause for just a minute? I think especially in First and Second Chronicles, it's helpful to remember the initial audience. This is a good interpretive principle. The Bible was written for you, but it was not written to you. And there's an added layer of insight to be appreciated when we try to put ourselves in the sandals of that initial audience. Now, can you imagine you're an Israelite, and you've been carried away captive into Babylon. And just when your expectations for the future were at their highest, you were on your way back to Jerusalem, you came across the horizon, and you saw your former city in shambles. Its walls were torn down. The temple that once was the centerpiece, the masterpiece of the city, was just a pile of rubble. And how your hopes might have been dashed. And you might have been inclined under those circumstances to think for just a moment that perhaps God has forgotten us. Perhaps the promises that God had given us prior to the exile, perhaps our rebellion, all the things that we've done, perhaps... Perhaps we have, by our action, voided the covenant agreement between ourselves and God. And you're, you're hearing the, the chronicler's writing here. It's being read. It's being expounded. It's being shared. Ezra is communicating the message of First and Second Chronicles. And you hear the words of Solomon as he prays and he reflects on the faithfulness of God to keep his promise to David. A generation now passed. Don't, don't you imagine that, that you might have perked up and, and given added thought to the notion 
that indeed God does keep his promises. That in spite of changing tides, the turning of generations, that, that God is faithful, everlastingly faithful, to keep his promise to his people. In verse 16, the Bible says, Therefore, Lord God of Israel, keep what you've promised to your servant, my father David. You will never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons guard their way to walk in my laws, you've walked before me. Now, Lord God of Israel, please confirm what you promised to your servant David. But will God indeed live on earth with man? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less this temple I've built. Listen to your servant's prayer and his petition, Lord my God, so that you may hear the cry and the prayer that your servant prays before you, so that your eyes watch over this temple day and night toward the place where you said you would put your name, and so that you may hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the petitions of your servant and your people Israel, which they pray toward this place. May you hear in your dwelling place in heaven. May you hear and forgive. Now, the prayer is much longer than the passage that we've just read. It continues throughout chapter 6, ending in verse 42. Now, I want you to jump over to chapter 7, the first three verses of that chapter. God gives a resounding yes. Yes, Solomon, I will hear, and I will forgive, and I am here. I am here. I am here. Verse 1 says, When Solomon finished praying, fire descended from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests were not able to enter the Lord's temple because the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. All the Israelites were watching when the fire descended and the glory of the Lord came on the temple. And they bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. They worshiped and they praised the Lord for he is good for his faithful love endures forever. One of the mistakes that I see people make, especially with First and Second Chronicles, but in many Old Testament passages, is by, by failing to build the interpretive bridge between where Israel was as a nation under God and where we are as a multi-ethnic people in the kingdom of God. One of the things that makes Christ, God coming in great glory and filling the temple special here, one of, the, one, of, one of the benefits of that, one of the byproducts of that, is that not only is the temple consecrated by his presence, but by virtue of the presence of the temple, the city of Jerusalem is consecrated as well. God has set his seal on the city of Jerusalem. This is his holy city. I, I am anxiously anticipating a trip to Israel in the fall of this year, in, in late summer, September of, of this year. And I, I can't wait to go there and, and to be there where so much of what we read in the Scripture unfolded, to walk where our Savior walked. But I need you to know, and you must remember as you study the Scripture, that what we long for with great earnestness, that what our hearts crave for is not the reestablishment of an earthly holy city, but a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, a, a, a place of absolute and utter perfection. Perfection. 
a place where not the symbolic presence of God, but the actual presence of God abides in such greatness that there is no need for sun, moon, or stars, for the glory of God illuminates the new city. That's what we're looking for, a new city, a new city. Be careful that you, you keep that notion in mind as you read First and Second Chronicles especially, but any Old Testament passage. We have no assurances. We have no assurances that there be any lasting or meaningful revival in our land. We don't have that assurance. But we do have the assurance through Jesus Christ that what he is building here on earth is a kingdom that will stand forever. A kingdom against which the nations may rage, but they will do so in vain. We have an everlasting king in an everlasting kingdom, and we have awaiting us an everlasting city that will be our place of abode 10,000 years from now, from now by faith in Jesus Christ. So there's just a snapshot of Solomon's contribution theologically to the history of Israel as it's told by the chronicler. Now, we'll go lightning speed through the last part of Second Chronicles, chapters 10 through 36. Now, I included in your outline so that you could see this sort of cycle that runs through the latter part of Second Chronicles, this idea of decline and revival, decline and revival, decline. That's not original to me and probably should be attributed to an author. If I can remember who the author was, I'll clean that up at some point in the future. Just know for the sake of integrity on Brother Wade's part that that's not original to me. You have this list of, of kings and how their reigns unfold. You have decline under Rehoboam and Abijam. Remember Rehoboam? You remember him? He's Solomon's son and he gets the tax practices mess, messed up. You know, everything old. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. People didn't like taxes in Rehoboam's day. People don't like taxes in our day. And the kingdom fell into decline as a product of Rehoboam's tax policy. Then there was revival under Asa and Jehoshaphat. One of my favorite stories in Second Chronicles comes within the context of the telling of that story of, of Asa and Jehoshaphat. Asa was a good king. He uh, sought to purge Judah of idolatry, cut down the high places, and moved the people in a God-honoring direction. And Jehoshaphat was a pretty good guy too, but he kind of comes off as a little goofy. He's king in Judah at the same time that Ahab is king in Israel, and Ahab seems to have the intellectual upper hand on Jehoshaphat in many instances. There's a, a prophet named Micaiah, and, uh, and, and Jehoshaphat calls for Micaiah to give a word of prophecy regarding whether Ahab and Jehoshaphat should go to, ba to battle. And Ahab says, I don't really want him to prophesy. He never says anything good about me. He always says a bad word. And he warns them, if you go to battle, Ahab's going to die. So Ahab talks Jehoshaphat into dressing up like Ahab, and Jehoshaphat, or Jehoshaphat is dressed like Ahab, and Ahab sort of shrinks back into the crowd. And you don't have all of the details here, but in the king's narrative, there's a boy who in the midst of the battle it takes a bow and just at random he draws the bow and he fires a random shot and it, and it finds the crevice in the armor of Ahab the king and he dies just as Micaiah said he would die. 
So we've got a good king in Asa, and we've got a good king who may have been less than bright in Jehoshaphat, but it's a period of some renewal and revival in the nation of, of Judah. Then you have Jehoram and Ahaziah and Athaliah, chapters 21 and 22. That's an interesting story. Athaliah is actually a woman. She's the only queen in Judah's history. Most, If you Google search kings in Judah, many of them will not include Athaliah because she's really not a legitimate queen. Um, there, there is a child that's preserved. Her, her son dies, and she is uh, the daughter of Ahab. She's married to the king of Judah. So the king of Judah is now all mixed up with Ahab, who's the worst king in Israel's history. Her son dies, and when he dies, she kills the rest of the family so that she can take authority, take the queenship. And she does for a while, but there's a faithful priest named Jehoiada. And Jehoiada finds young Joash, he's six years old, and he sneaks him away, and he raises the boy until he's reached an age of ability and can now rule over Judah. And then they bring him back in, and they overthrow Athaliah, and she's killed. But it's a period of some trouble for the nation. There's revival under Joash, the boy who was raised by the priest Jehoiada. There was some spiritual investment made in the boy, and he seeks to guide the people of Judah back to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. There is decline under Ahaz, another bad king, and then there's a very rapid telling of the history of the remaining kings of Israel in chapters 29 through 36. Now turn over to chapter 36 of Second Chronicles. I want to show you how the story ends, and we'll wrap up. In the Hebrew Bible, the Chronicles comes last. In your English Bibles, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. But in the Hebrew Bible, the Chronicles come last. And I'm inclined to think that the Chronicles come last in the Hebrew canon, in the Hebrew Bible, because it, it allows the opportunity to end the book with some hope. There's an optimistic ending to Second Chronicles. You remember we talked a moment ago about uh, Judah being carried away captive into Babylon. And for a period of 70 some odd years, they were roughly 70 years, they were in Babylonian captivity. But there arose a king in Persia. Persia came and overthrew the Babylonians. It was, in your history books, the Medo-Persian Empire. But the Medes were much smaller than the Persians, so much, many of them will just say the Persian Empire. And Cyrus was a king in Persia who looked favorably upon the Israelite people. And he made a decree. That decree is covered in verses 22 and following in chapter 29 of Second Chronicles uh, 36. These are the last verses of the book. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord spoke through, the word the Lord spoke through Jeremiah was fulfilled. The Lord put it into the mind of King Cyrus of Persia to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and also put it into writing. Now, note here, Cyrus is not a Christian. Cyrus is, Cyrus is not a Jew. I think sometimes we limit ourselves to believing that God only works through godly kings. No, God works through who he decides he wants to work through. And, and even the most obnoxious, e even the most atheistic, even the most rebellious of kings, 
they, they live under the lordship of the king of kings. They are held in the hand of the God who fashioned them. Even what they intend for evil, God is actively at work by his good providence, turning, bending for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. Here a pagan king has put into his heart by none other than God himself that he would look kindly upon the people of Israel. In verse 23, there's a brief recording of the decree itself. Here's what it says. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, or, uh, at Jerusalem in Judah. Whoever among you of his people may go up and may the Lord his God, may the Lord his God be with him. So here's what that means. Not only am I going to let you go back, I'm going to write you a blank check for all you need to make this temple project a reality. Do you see how God can take pagan people and pagan resources and do something fantastic for his people and for the glory of his name? He's not limited in the ways we often limit him. But, but here, here, th th there's an optimistic ending to the story. Are you all tracking with me? I know our time's almost up. Hang in two minutes. Here, here at the, at the end of, of this description of how God has been at work providentially in the history of Israel, there is this reminder that this is not far into distant history, but, but months ago, the exile community, those who have returned, the post-exile community, Ezra says, hear me now. God was actively involved in the history of our people, not centuries ago, but seconds ago, which would tend to lead one to believe that God is actively involved in the unfolding of his people's history at the present hour. I hope that as you read the Bible, we are now 2,000 years removed from the events recorded in the Bible that you're careful to bridge the gap in your hearts and minds between what God did then and there and what God is doing here and now. The way we know that God is not finished with his people is because the sky has yet to roll back and God has yet to gather us to himself. God is still keeping the promise he made to his people thousands of years to go, ago. The word of God stands. The gospel will sound forth to the four winds of the earth, and then the end will come. He's still actively involved in the intimate details of our life. We identify with the post-exilic community, recipients of the promise of God. We identify with the pre-exilic community, recipients of the promise of God. We identify with the pre-resurrection community of God's people, recipients of the promises of God. We identify with the post-resurrection people of God. We, we are those people, recipients of God's great promise. Now, I'm not suggesting that you're going to be able to look around your life and, and, and make note of all the ways that God is actively involved in your experience. I'm completely convinced but we so often miss the mark. We think God's doing one thing when he's doing a million other things that we're completely unaware of. But one thing we can be certain about, that God is actively involved in the lives of his people at work for our good and for his glory. Aren't you glad for that?